But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Hey, welcome back to episode 38 of the Reach Podcast. In today's show, I'm chatting to Tarina, who actually on Twitter goes by the name of Crazy Cancer Lady. Um, and for good reason. Uh, Tarina has been diagnosed or was diagnosed about three years ago with terminal cancer, uh, metastatic breast cancer, and essentially is, is living with terminal cancer. And the idea that uh, she she's going to pass from this disease and it's something that I've been wanting to do for a while and I picked Tarina because on Twitter she does a really good job of speaking candidly and, and honestly about the realities of what it's like to deal with this diagnosis, what it's like to live with the stress of it, um, how you take your mind off it um, and the strain it puts on uh, friends and family and also personal relationships as well. Uh, so that's kind of the bulk of the talk today uh, is talking to Tareen about what it's like to live with a terminal diagnosis. Um, and if you know someone in this scenario, please do put them in contact or get them to follow uh, Tarina on, on Twitter because there's a lot of really powerful networks. Um, Tarina and, and there's a bunch of other people on Twitter that kind of regularly get together and talk about different struggles that, quite frankly, only they can understand. Um, so if you know someone that would benefit from that, um, direct them towards her and kind of follow along with the Twitter chat. But I wanted to do this episode as well because it, it, it helps to hear it as well. You know, you can't really understand or uh, or dissect kind of tone and, and uh, you can only say so much in 140 or 280 characters or whatever on Twitter. So being able to have this open and honest conversation with Trina was really insightful for me. And I think a lot of people are going to get get uh, get quite a bit out of it and it's it's refreshing to have that kind of honest perspective on this as well so i won't keep you any longer and um, i hope you get as much out of this chat with trina than i did and i do have to thank her so much for again being so candid in her accounts of what she's gone through uh, what she's going through now and and kind of what she's facing moving forward and you know it's not all doom and gloom we talk a lot about some some holidays and all that stuff she's got uh, booked up and how you can kind of get the most out of things too so all around it was a great chat and i hope you get something out of it too um so sit back and we'll chat to you soon so listen thanks a lot i i know we've been trying to organize this for a while but i really appreciate you doing this and i think it's going to be a really well received podcast because like i said i think we're both kind of in agreement that there's a lot of positivity surrounding people going through cancer treatments and and dealing with a diagnosis but on the other side of that, um, people can feel pressure to, to act positive too much and that can cause a lot mm -hmm. of stress on them as well. And, and the reality of, of someone like yourself who's dealing with a terminal diagnosis, it's not always going to be positive. So I think, you know, yeah. from, from your blog and from Twitter, I, I've, I found it really valuable to follow you as a, as a patient, basically going through this and talking about your experiences because it, it at the reality it, it cuts through a lot of the the kind of bullshit that we see and gets right to the point of what you're dealing with um so mm -hmm. I'd, I'd like to kind of focus the episode on that but let's talk a little bit about your background and and you know terminally diagnosed 31 but we had you kind of uh, missed a, a mammogram a few years earlier kind of talk about that few year period to to when you were diagnosed yeah so the first time symptoms showed up, I was about 27, um, 2011, but I wouldn't have recognized those early symptoms as anything because um, they're kind of nonspecific. There was just a bit of pain, just a bit of nervy kind of pain. So I didn't really, um, I didn't really think anything of it then. And I was 27 and you just think you're invincible at that age anyway. Um, so then 
I started to get a misshaped nipple, which was weird, but um, that went on for a few months. And then I thought, hmm, maybe I should start, maybe I should get that checked out. Um, and then it had started to invert as well. Um, so that was strange because that just doesn't happen out of nowhere. So I was living in Cork um, in Ireland at the time. And I happened to have a medical card because I have um, another um, uh, chronic illness. So that qualified me for one. So because I had a free medical card, I went to a doctor that was a medical card uh, practice. I had decided, I was trying to decide between that and the Well Woman Centre in Cork. And I should have gone to the second place that you have to pay for the Well Woman Centre. I should have gone there. Um, but I went to the free service where I was seen by a doctor who was male and approaching retirement. And I showed him and he said, um, very emphatically, oh, don't worry, that won't be cancer. I still remember um, how emphatic he was about that. He was, he said, that won't be cancer. He really, he really downplayed it. He didn't even do a manual examination. He just downplayed it. But he said, I'm going to order a mammogram anyway, but you don't have anything to worry about. And then during that time, I moved house and I didn't get my letter for the mammogram and I forgot about it. And that was my fault as well. That's not just him. But um, I realized I forgot the mammogram, but I, his words were ringing in my ears. This this won't be cancer. So I didn't um, I didn't reschedule. And then maybe about a year after that, I started to get this intermittent pain in my ribs, but it would just go away. Like it would be very painful, but it would only last 10 seconds and go away. So I didn't think anything of that. Then about a year after that, I started to get very, very severe rib pain. It just started suddenly one day and was intermittent, but the pain would last longer each time. And then about six months before my diagnosis, I started to have problems breathing to the extent it deteriorated rapidly to the extent that I couldn't walk two meters without being very badly out of breath. And I, during this time from when my ribs started to get very sore, I was seeing doctors every few weeks who would just fob me off. It's this, it's that. You have an infection. I even showed one my boob, which by this stage was bleeding, had loads of pus coming out of it. I couldn't breathe and I had pain. And she just said I had an infection and sent me on my way. Wow. I didn't think to put all the symptoms together. Finally, I was sent, because my lungs were deteriorating, I was sent to, a not, not, not a cancer hospital, just a my local hospital, to a pulmonary specialist because they were thinking it was some kind of lung problem. So I got a CAT scan there. This was in May 2015. And that's when it all showed up. But that was the first time, and he wasn't even looking for cancer. And it just showed up then. But no doctor before that thought to put together all these symptoms, including a bloody boob. And it was very scary. Towards the end, I would be so out of breath going up the stairs to my office where I worked that I thought that I was going to die. Like I could not get breath into myself, which was really scary. And my mother had had breast cancer and my aunt had had breast cancer. And I told doctors that. And I had a bloody boob and none of them were wow. thought. Yes. Um, so uh, my faith in doctors says, um, I, well, I never <laughs> really put them on a pedestal and now I really don't. <laughs> was it was it the lung specialist then who, who told you or did he refer you to an oncology clinic or, or no, anything like that? No, poor guy. He told me and I was waiting. I had a CT scan in the hospital and I was waiting and waiting and waiting. For some reason, my sister came in that day and I was like, there's no need, it's fine. And she must have felt something was wrong because she was like, I'm coming in. And we were both sitting there and it's so weird the things you remember. We were looking at this article on Wikipedia. <laughs> it's a list of unusual deaths. And we were reading through that. We were like, look at this weird death. Look at that weird death. And then he came along and he said, do you want your sister to come into the room with you? And I was like, no, it's fine. He was like, 
no, really, do you want your sister to come in with you? And when you look back now, he was saying, you need somebody with you. And I said, no. And then he took me into a room and he said, I'm afraid the news is not so good. So I said, in my head, I said, I'm just going to go and ask him, is it the worst thing? And then we can work back from that. So I was like, is it cancer? And he um, paused for a few seconds. And that pause is the worst moment of my life because I realized it was. And I knew straight away that it was bad. Wow. If it was cancer, I was I was going to be one of the bad cases. There was no, oh, well, there might be a bit of denial early on, but I pretty much knew it was bad. Yeah. Um, so what was that conversation like? So you were, you were on your own, your sister was outside waiting to, yeah, because I had said to stay outside. So he, it was a ward, but he took me into a side room and closed the door and he was, he was nice. Like he was as nice as you could be in that horrible moment. And I don't envy him having to give that diagnosis to somebody so young. And also he said he was a bit shocked because you know, he hadn't, he basically had no warning of this either. People, the doctors before that were kind of, kind of let him down as well. But, um, he, he was, he was going to paint a story. He said over, you know, what it was, but I just cut through it when I said, is it cancer? He was like, right. I was building up to that, but yeah. Wow. (laughs) Um, his registrar was there with him and she wasn't, I kind of don't have warm feelings towards her because she was like, how did you not know? The lump was huge. I was just like, leave she me alone. That? Yes. <laughs> and she had, she was kind of smiling. I was just oh, like, man. and then she was like, okay, I just want to see if I can feel your lymph nodes here. I was like, get away from me. Just, I'm, <laughs> just tell them both. And she just, they just told me this news. And I was like, you examine me in a little while. You don't need to do it just now. <laughs> so he was nice. His registrar wasn't as nice. So, she needs um, to work. He told you, <laughs> yeah, on our bedside manner. He told you in that moment that it was terminal too, or did he just say it's it's cancer? Well, how he said was, he said it was breast cancer, and he said there was shadows on the spine. So, I suppose at that moment, I didn't really exactly know what that meant. But what you just know when it goes past the breast that that's not good. But yeah, I'd probably be lying if I said I knew exactly what yeah. that meant at that moment. But he did say the news isn't good. And I just feel like if somebody was just, they were sure early stage, they probably would have been a bit more upbeat. So at least he didn't seem to be trying to hide anything, really. He he was pretty honest. I think he was probably just a bit in shock himself, to be honest. I think he wasn't expecting this at all. He thought he'd be dealing with somebody with pulmonary sarcoidosis or something, you know. What was it like for you, Dan, to go out to your... What was it like for you to go out to your sister sitting in the waiting room? Were you the one that told her? Mm-hmm. I just, I barely remember that now. I just sort of stumbled out and I kind of was hobbling a lot of them at the time as well. I just stumbled out and sat down beside her and told her and then we both just stumbled back into the room. Um, I just know that we were then making phone calls. You know, my husband had just finished work and on a Friday evening and that was, that was the call he got. Um, and then my sister rang my parents, um, who told everyone straight away. So by three hours later, everyone in my hometown knew about it. I didn't really get any privacy. So that was kind of a nightmare, but they were shocked, I guess. So it was just a bit of a, that bit is kind of a bit of a blur. Yeah. And then you had all weekend because there would have been nothing to be done about it all the weekend. Yeah. So I was sent home to come back in on Monday and I just remember that first weekend that I just slept a lot because I think that's all I could mentally I think my mentally shut down and sleeping was all I could do because I just couldn't deal with it and my husband did a lot of housework that weekend which isn't him so (laughs) he he was just like oh I got to put my energy somewhere so he I just remember me sleeping on the sofa a lot and him hoovering around me so weird (laughs) easy to remember but I was in the heart so did you go back then to uh, the hospital the following week to, to get checkups and all that? Or how did that go down? I was, I was admitted as an inpatient for about a week, I think. Um, and from there, I was sent to all my, um, you know, you have to get your CAT scans, your MRIs, just to see, they had to see where, where it had spread to, because 
you know, it had just been a CAT scan that maybe was only focused on one area. I don't know. So got all my tests. I still had to go through the whole triple assessment that breast cancer patients go through, which is ultrasound, biopsy, mammogram. Even though they knew I had it at that stage, they still have to do that because they have to figure out what kind of breast cancer it is. Um, and then I was in a ward with like really these two old ladies who were really nosy and kept asking me all these questions. And, I, <laughs> and they were really loud. And I was just like, I wanted, I wanted a private room, but they couldn't give it to me because they just didn't have it. Oh, um, so that was about a week of tests. And then I was sent home. And then I started chemo um, in another hospital, maybe a week and a half after diagnosis. Um, but I was very happy to be home. <laughs> yeah. So at what point did you find out it was terminal? Um, so maybe about five days after diagnosis, maybe around the Wednesday of the following week, we wow. went to the cancer hospital and we went into for a chat with the consultant and he just disabused us of any notions we had that it was curable. You know, I mentioned, oh, so yeah, when I get my mammogram, he was like, steady on. And he was kind of like, we're kind of past that phase now. And then my mom was like, oh, it's, you know, low grade. He's like, no, it's not low grade. And then, you know, he just explained that it was stage four. That's the stage that isn't curable. Um, but before I went to the cancer hospital for that, I had also had got some snippets from doctors in the, the first hospital I was diagnosed in and they were kind of not equipped for dealing with cancer patients because they were pretty blunt. They were just like, yeah. It's, um, I remember, oh, there was one thing that really stuck out to me where I said to a doctor, I said, is it treatable? She was like, well, everything's treatable. <laughs> like, oh my God. Oh, some things doctor, I mean, I've like, there are some great doctors out there, but I have really had my eyes open to that. People <laughs> who are doctors are infallible like anyone else. And some of them should not be doing the job. Yeah. Just, well, everything's treatable. So she's like treatable, not curable. That's what it is. And just kind of like quite blunt. So I suppose I'd had snippets before I went to the cancer hospital that it, it wasn't going to be curable. But I suppose he, the consultant I saw there was the first one that really, like, really rammed it home that it wasn't. But he was a very nice doctor, I remember, because, and this seems weird, he was visibly upset about this, about meeting someone who was terminal so young. And I actually think that's nice that he was, he wasn't just robotic. He clearly was upset that I was young and I had terminal cancer. Yeah. He just had look on his face like this is awful <laughs> and maybe some people wouldn't like that but I actually thought that made him human so yeah. he was the first one I met so that had actually seemed concerned you know what what a crazy week though from from having no idea that you had it had cancer to being initially diagnosed and then five days later to, being told it's terminal like, yeah <laughs> what what did yeah. that do to your mindset well, I did not, um, I didn't handle it well. I'm, you know, I'm in awe of some of the bloggers I follow. I follow a lot of bloggers too, because they're so, such a comfort. And I'm in awe of how well some people deal with it, because I didn't will, deal with it well at all. Um, I just kind of shut down. I would only talk really to my husband or my mother. I didn't, basically for a three month period after the diagnosis, the summer basically, I was just a bit of a basket case. I didn't really talk to any of my friends. I was just perpetually in a state of horror. I couldn't I couldn't listen to loud noises or music during that time. Sensory overload was a problem. Like if me and my husband were in the sitting room together and he put on like a loud film, I'd have to go into another room or just tell him to turn it off because I just... I was already, my emotions were already completely heightened because of the diagnosis and I couldn't handle anything on top of that. Um, so the first three months were just awful, really awful. I just kind of became a basket case. Then around August, late August, 
it lifted somewhat and I was able to talk to people again. But for the first three months, just stay away from me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just, I didn't handle it well. I mentally was not very well equipped for it. Um, and just the difference between my life now and my friends who were all just getting promotions, buying houses, having kids. And I was just with this thing, wow. you know, and also I had a lot of pain in the first three months. Probably what helped mentally as well that was that my chemo worked well, the first one I had. So my symptoms improved a lot throughout the summer and that probably helped mentally too. You know, when you feel somewhat normal, that, that does help. But it was a horrible time. Wow. So <laughs> yeah. how, how long did you have chemo for? I had my first chemo. I started it in mid-May and I finished it in mid-October. But I was unlucky enough to have a flare-up of my other chronic illness after my second chemo infusion I used to get them weekly so I actually was admitted to hospital at the end of May so about a month after I start no a month after I was diagnosed um and I was actually admitted to hospital with a perforated bowel and this was just this is my other chronic illness which is no big deal it flares up sometimes I was unlucky enough that it happened to flare up just after I was diagnosed with cancer so I spent three weeks in hospital um and then my chemo actually had to be uh, postponed for a few weeks so I thought that was a huge worry because I had just been diagnosed I was quite late stage and I was having to pause the chemo and having to deal with another illness and oh my god um it was just insane I was like I just can't believe my luck here yeah and I think that I think they were worried too the doctors because I asked for a prognosis from my oncologist early on and he wouldn't give me one because he said he doesn't give them. And I found out later from somebody else who who has him as a as their oncologist too that he gave them one. And I think looking back, the reason he didn't give me a prognosis was um, I think that he thought I probably didn't have very long and he didn't want to crush me. <laughs> so I was very late stage and I had to pause chemo for so from mid-May to mid-October, I had chemo with a pause of about three weeks um, early on. Um, but basically it worked well. And he took me off it in mid-October because they get less effective over time and the side effects increase. So he said, we'll take you off this and put you onto the hormone therapy while it's worked well. And then we can come back to it if we need to, maybe. He just, I suppose they want to keep you on chemo for as little time as possible. Um, because it's so harsh you yeah. know yeah i mean that that three-week pause must have had caused some serious anxiety for you as well kind yeah of thinking everything was going well or as well as it could be and then it's kind of the, the dangers of pausing chemo and pausing treatment if it's effective what might mm -hmm. happen i know and even at that point i didn't even know if the chemo was effective at that point because i'd only had two you know they only give you a scan maybe a few months in so i didn't i needed the chemo and then i I had to pause the chemo at a critical stage when it was just getting started. And then I was like, if it's had start if it started working, have we backtracked here? You know, because I've had to stop quite early. So that was hard. And then I've uh, been in hospital for three weeks at that stage when I just wanted to be home was really hard too. But yeah. um and it's weird, this is you know, you you remember key points. Um so you're you're Irish and I'm Irish, so you might remember this. I don't know you I don't know if you were aware of this event in Ireland at the time but do you remember um that Berkeley balcony collapse that happened with the yeah, J1 student? yeah over in California yeah yeah that happened during my time in hospital and I remember me and my mother just not being able to handle that news at all because we were already in the horrors and we were just like oh my god that's such that's such a tragedy oh my god the <laughs> Irish I remember us both just freaking out in the hotel room or in the hospital room obviously usually we'd be upset about that but um because we had this personal thing going on and she was thinking about losing her daughter we were both yeah. just like this is oh, overload can't deal with this it's just weird you know all the there's these key moments that stick out for you during as any cancer patient will tell you there are things that stick in your mind and that's one for me and also i was stuck in hospital so it was yeah. just yeah well actually <laughs> i mean irish mammies being irish irish mammies as warriors what what was that like to to have your ma there and, and did you tell her what was her reaction? 
Um, she was uh, she wasn't in Dublin um, where I was diagnosed. She wasn't there at the time. So I rang her. Well, no, my sister rang her. So I don't know what her initial reaction was about. Like, but I think. I think it wasn't good. Um, <laughs> she's very practical, though. Um, she's very practical. Doing things helps her cope, I think. So she was there with me the whole time. Luckily, she had retired, so she could just be there. Um, but she said during that time period, she lost a stone because she just and she said she stopped being able to eat sweet things because if anyone presented with anything sweet, she would just be like, Ugh go away from me so she said she lost the stone at the time but I didn't realize all this at the time I um I you know she was just there as support but I was not very nice to her she was probably the one who got the brunt of my initial feelings which for the first three months sorry for the first three weeks after diagnosis was anger undiluted anger I've never experienced that before or since just I you know like a lot of bloggers always say, oh, I never said, why me? Oh, why anyone? Well, I was not like that. I was like, why me? Why? <laughs> I was not very like magnanimous. So she had to deal with a lot of my anger early on, which thankfully did pass. <laughs> but I find myself agreeing with you in, I, I'm almost positive I would be the same way. I mean, 31 is so young to get a terminal diagnosis and... Mm-hmm given the circumstances that led up to it and there was potentially a lot of opportunities that could have been caught earlier I mm-hmm. you, you, not that you, you don't want to say you can't blame you but I would have the exact same emotion and unfortunately as life turns out the, the ones closest to us tend to get the biggest brunt of of our yeah. lashing out from anger yeah it's because it's because you know you can kind of yeah you can shout some stranger they'll just be like see ya you know that your mother isn't going anywhere yeah well i know my mother isn't going anywhere so um you kind of take advantage of that a bit which is awful but it's true you know and you're right like 31 is so young like i was just out of my 20s you know it's just really like you're really cut off at the knees that's what it feels like yeah and you're right i mean the the idea that well, I suppose we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I wanted to uh, like fast forward to to when you just finished up with chemo and the doctor's deciding to go on hormonal therapy. When he when he's saying to you, "We're going to go on hormonal therapy," it's he's pretty much saying this is indefinite. You know, I'm a I'm a mm. planner, so I would have been like, "Okay, for how long? And what's next? And what's next?" Mm. And you're still kind uh, of dealing with this amb- ambiguity of we don't really know how long what's going on. Yeah. Um, one thing me and my husband struggled with early in the diagnosis was that this ends with death and that's what it ends with. And, um, and then we don't know when that's going to be. And that's the thing that we as a couple have struggled, struggled with the most is the uncertainty. And especially, yeah, my husband is a planner too, and you can't plan for this. And also every treatment you get, you don't know how long it's going to work for. Um, so the chemo was three, three and a half months. Then I was put on tamoxifen, which is a hormonal treatment. And this is ridiculous, but I'm really bad at taking tablets. And I only took them half the time because I didn't want it to be a reality either. <laughs> and my cancer progressed. It's so stupid. Like I, um, My cancer progressed a little bit then, um, but that was my fault. Um, so then he was like, we're putting you on injection hormones. So you get them once a month and you get them every month. And I was like, that sounds brilliant. So I started this current treatment that I'm on in February, no, March 2016. So it's been working well for two years. We're kind of thinking maybe it might have stopped working. But, um, well, I'm, pain has been slightly increasing lately, so I might have to change it soon. But that's okay. I mean, I kind of think two years was pretty good, actually. Um, and there are other hormone therapies, so I won't have to go on chemo again. But <laughs> you'd struggle, I have to say, because... The thing is, you, if you were asking your oncologist now, I hope you're never in this position, but just imagine, uh, he wouldn't be able to give you straight answers because for every patient, a treatment can work different amounts of time. Someone might only get, someone might, some people that mightn't work at all. Someone might work six months, someone might work two years. So oncologists, like 
they can't be that specific because they can't tell you anything too definite because um, they don't know. They just don't know until you get the treatment. So you would struggle with that. Oh, I, I, I just as you you know from from this conversation, the one we had last time, as I reflect on it, it's kind of I I'd be snapping because I when at least if you know yeah. knew you know it's it's going to be imminent or it's going to be a year from now or it's going to be five years from now how like yeah. give me a window or of something i can do to where i can actually plan for it i can figure out who i need to yeah. see or what i need to do but just again that you literally have no idea it's yeah, got to be something that, that you really struggle with it it is and i was talking to my husband about this lately and he was like I hope you live 10 years. And I was like, I hope I don't. I don't want to be thinking about this for 10 years. I don't want that. Like, because it's not, it's not 10 years of a full life. It's 10 years of knowing you have huge physical limitations, which I do. And that's really hard. Five years ago, I was cycling around Cork City. Um, I'd go to the supermarket. I'd fill up my backpack with groceries and I'd cycle up a big hill home. And I was quite fit, like, and... So that, you know, that seems like a past life to me. And this will be 10 years of never being that fit again. Um, You know, watching everyone's lives soar. So I kind of wish I knew as well. And I know that's weird, but if I had, if I knew for definite uh, two years, then, you know, you could make plans and it would have an end point. We both really struggle with the um, uncertainty of it. it's so open-ended it's you kind of just feel like you have no purpose or something you know you're just muddling along and everyone you know people complain about their jobs and my husband complains about his job but he was like I still really like having my job because it just it gives you a purpose you put one foot in front of the other you go and you contribute to society and I don't have that now I'm just sort of like I'm just a lump just a big cancery lump sitting here on the sofa. <laughs> <laughs> it's oh. weird to be in your early 30s and not to be out there working and contributing. It's just weird. You just It feels all wrong. Like, it just does. Yeah. You know. It, I mean, I kind of get in a sense of what you're saying. I mean, I'm, I'm entering my late 20s now, so I can see what you're saying. With Your friends are all starting to get on their feet, and they're mm-hmm. all kind of getting promotions and jobs, and they're starting to look forward to the future where they're planning for kids and planning for families and all that stuff and and you suddenly get that ripped away from you where you don't get to plan mm-hmm. and you don't really yeah. like that that must be a, a completely different you know monster to deal yeah. with too yeah because you see if it had been early stage cancer it would have been hard and I would have my career would have suffered because you have to take like a year out but I would have put my head down done the treatment and you know, I've done that before with my other uh, my other illness. Um, I had to take a basically year out from college, and it was really hard. And I had to go back into a college class that all my friends weren't in. But you do it, and it's worth it, and you move on with your life. So people who get other cancers, maybe Hodgkin's lymphoma or things that are much more curable, it must be a pain in the ass. But I'm sure they are thinking, okay, but after this, I can get out with my life. But with this, there was just, okay, my wings have been clipped completely I this is it I'm grounded just forever I'm I'm a flightless bird now (laughs) you know um and yeah that's hard and then like you know I I have the illness but this does affect my husband's life too you know um because we were talking the other day we were always really unsure about having children and I never really was that bothered about having them and after I was diagnosed, that pretty much confirmed for me that I didn't really want them because a lot of kid, women my age, that's their first thought. Oh, my God, children. So um, that's fine for me. And at least it's something I don't have any anguish about. Um, but my husband admitted that he does see himself at 50 with surrounded by kids. So then there's that weird dynamic as well, because it's like, OK, but you're not going to have them with me. So, um Wow. You know, it's that's very profound when you think about it. He has to think about, you know, we we are obviously into each other, but he's, we're not going to have kids. But then he has to think about the future as well and meeting someone else. And I know for guys, it's a bit easier in that regard. You can have kids a bit later, but still, it's um, 
it must be a bit of a burden, you know, thinking, oh, okay, I'll have to go into the dating game again in the future. Oh my God. Wow, yeah. You know, and that's, um, you know, I was glad he told me because I think he should be honest. But like, it's, it was still kind of hard to hear because then you're like, oh God, I'm just holding you back now, you know? Yeah. It's hard. Basically what me and my husband find is that this diagnosis it's just relentlessly throwing things at you and doesn't and it won't let up so that's really that's pretty tough <laughs> yeah yeah i mean yeah it's a bit like <laughs> you don't really have i mean you you lose a lot of that lightheartedness there's 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 like a heaviness oh, yeah. around most of your conversations and it's just always in the back of your head even if he's are just hanging out that's a great way to put it actually um there is a certain carefree part of the relationship that's gone forever. And that's, that's shitty. Like, yeah, <laughs> every couple I think needs that, but I mean, we've survived, but, um, as a couple, but it's been tough. <laughs> it has definitely been tough. Um, you, you kind of mentioned the idea of being, being a burden. Do you, do you feel that with your, with your family and friends that you, you I mean, you, you said earlier, a big, a, I always feel bad repeating it. A big, what did you say, cancerous lump? Um, do you do you feel that? Does that weigh on you that you feel as if you're a burden to other people? Um, maybe not my family so much. Um, kind of my husband a bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's never made me feel that way, but um, yeah. And then, of course. Um, there's also just practical considerations. Um, I don't have money for a funeral, so you know, my husband, my family will have to find that money. You know, it's just stuff like that. That's kind of, that kind of stuff weighs in my mind. I would love just to be able to sort that all myself, and then that wouldn't be a worry. But yeah, probably my husband more than my family because you know, my mother has my father, my sister has her husband. They'll be, they'll have someone, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. And and it's... have those conversations about after you've gone, have they become easier? Are they are they still pretty tough, or is there stuff that's kind of left unsaid? We're pretty open. We, but in our day to day life, we kind of um, operate under sort of denial a bit, just because my husband needs that to get through his everyday yeah. life um, and then every once in a while we'll have a big talk about it and a big cry and then we just get on with it because he needs that you know just to like um just to be able to go to work and go to the pub after work and whatever just to have a normal life we need that um and he needs it especially that's his coping mechanism so i try to go along with that um uh my family i guess there's a bit of that denial too um i don't think it's a bad thing because we all know what's coming but you know you don't have to think about it all the time and you know how i mentioned that three-month period after i was diagnosed where it was just a basket case i during that period i could never imagine having any moment in time where i didn't think about cancer i was like how is that possible i'm just gonna be thinking about it all the time but there are genuinely times where i'm like watching a really funny film or I'm at a comedian or whatever and I'm just laughing and in the moment and I just don't think about it. So that's great. At least they're at least you're not thinking about it. Like I never thought that would be possible. It would just go out of my head and it does. It's crazy. Like I can just laugh and just be thinking about something else and not be thinking about that. So that helps too. That it's not always on my mind. Yeah, I kinda um, caught that from your blog the other day where you were kinda saying I feel like a lot of the blogs are a little bit downbeat, but in general, in 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 your day to day life, you're a much kind of more upbeat and, and happier person. Yeah, and I think that doesn't come across on my blog. But then somebody on Twitter said to me, "Well, maybe this is just where you have to be downbeat. You know, maybe that's get all the downbeat stuff out into your blog and then just go around." Yeah, because I I think it does have a downbeat voice. More definitely, my blog compared to other. But like one thing you find about blogs is they all have different voices and some are more upbeat and some are not. And mine is definitely one of the downbeat ones, but no, in my everyday life, like I'm not going around with a cloud over my head the whole time. Um, 
you know, I read a lot. I read a lot about things that aren't cancer related. And <laughs> actually, I find that um, if I read too much about um, cancer stuff or people dying, um, it really affects my mood. So I've kind of learned to stay away from it a bit in my everyday life. Um, yes, I'm not I'm not a big depressive all the time, but in my book, I am. <laughs> <laughs> I remember um, when we when we spoke last time before we kind of came on, you were talking about it might have been your husband. Someone had a fight with you, and you you almost had this kind of relief that they felt okay enough not to tiptoe around you and treat you normal and, and mm. actually be able to have the fight with you. Yeah, I think that was my husband, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, yes, there was one. Yeah, like yeah, the first row we had after diagnosis was brilliant it was just you know a stupid couple route like it was just you know like really petty and then we were over it 10 minutes later you know one of those ones yeah. and it was great to have that because it just felt like normal you know it just just felt like I wasn't being treated like um like I'm some kind of angel now or something you know yeah in fact like <laughs> I've definitely you know cancer kind of brings out some of your worst qualities so um yeah, that was good. It wasn't. I wasn't being treated like a special case anymore. You know. Yeah, that was a relief. <laughs> um, you you also spoke about over Christmas and and just kind of um have been exhausted from trying to put on a brave face the whole time and and um kind of maybe people have an empty fatigue where they kind of just run out of always kind of trying to be there for you and things like that and and it's mm. tough to be around all these holidays when everyone else is upbeat and you kind of just don't feel like doing it yeah yeah um yeah there definitely is a bit of empty fatigue well what it is is that um a lot of people especially if they haven't seen me for a while just and because i have a full head of hair and uh, i'm a bit plump they just kind of forget that like i have cancer <laughs> so i think it's just that um, they just have kind of got back to normal a lot of people especially anyone outside the inner circle probably doesn't even know that I'm, I have terminal cancer because I haven't told everyone because not everyone can handle it so yeah Christmas um, it can be I like some aspects of it but it can be tough New Year's probably can be is is more tough um, I never really liked New Year's and now it's kind of harder because people are talking about the future and no oh, let's change this and that and I'm like another year of the same <laughs> <laughs> my life doesn't change now <laughs> um, um, yeah and I haven't told everyone that I have terminal cancer I decide on a person by person basis who I tell because then I think I'm wary of people if I tell them just being like oh yeah but you'll be you'll survive it yeah I just don't want to have to deal with that, explaining to them, no, I won't, this is why. And a yeah. lot of people really don't know much about science. And, uh, <laughs> I just don't. I just don't have the energy, yeah. yeah. That, that brings up a good point about, uh, I was going to ask you about what are some of the, the, the misconceptions that people have about a terminal illness, or or what do they say that, you know, if you were to kind of create this, this like, PA infomercial like things not to say to someone with a terminal illness like what are some of the things that people just put their foot in their mouth with um i don't know how i feel about those lists i know a lot of cancer patients make them and i understand that especially terminal cancer um i'm a bit wary because i just think if i was in their position wouldn't i be putting my foot in? like it, you, this is a very unique position most people will live to their life expectancy. Most people will live to 70 or 80 and they'll never have to experience this. Um, so we're kind of a very niche group and I just don't know if those lists, I don't know if anyone listens to them really because yeah. I don't know, do you, have you ever read any lists like that? Like No, I, no. and, and I, mean, I think as you're kind of talking, like you're never going to be prepared to, to have, no. like if you came up to me and said, listen, and I look at you as a thirty-four-year-old woman. You say I'm, I'm, I have terminal cancer. Not, you're not going to recall any list. You're going to be dumbfounded. You know, there's not, exactly. there's not a lot you can be. You can't be trained to deal with something like that. 
Yeah, exactly. You're you're going to be putting your foot in it and then you're going to put your other foot in it to <laughs> accompany the foot. But like, well, I understand why people make them because it's just people venting their frustrations. I mean, I think a lot of those lists that people, cancer patients make, I don't think they're actually expecting people to go through a bullet point. I think it's just they're frustrated at the things, stupid things people say to them. Well, this was by a hospital consultant. This was in the first hospital I was diagnosed in before I was transferred to the cancer hospital. I was having a terrible night. Um, There was a really lovely care assistant there who, she was busy, she was the overnight care assistant, but anytime she had a free moment, she'd come in and talk to me and sit with me, which was lovely. And she must've just told the hospital consultant just I wasn't in a good way. And the hospital consultant came in. This was not a consultant trained in cancer now, she was another one. And she said to me, but sure we could all get hit by a bus tomorrow. Oh like it's just like I can't believe she said that. You know, I know people say that who aren't doctors, but she completely missed the point of why I was so upset. Yeah. Um, yes, I might get hit by a bus, but probably not. And whereas I am definitely going to die from this, and I'm 31, I just am still gobsmacked at the, her lack of sensitivity. She's a doctor, you know. This is that's the worst bedside manner ever. That's just <laughs> awful. Like, um, God, so many people shouldn't be doctors. Oh, God. Anyway, um, <laughs> I think, um, well, people, the main one is that people don't understand the treatment is forever. And they think, but they, they'll say to me, but I thought your treatment was working well. And I'm like, yes, for me, working well means that it's keeping me alive for a bit longer, not that it's cured me. That's probably the biggest um, thing that people just cannot get their heads around that I won't be cured of this. It's inoperable. It's all throughout my system. It's systemic. So it's not, you can't like mop it all up. Um, that's probably the biggest um, thing I've come up against. And people just don't want to understand because it's death and nobody wants to think about that. And that's what I think people miss a bit with the what not to say to cancer patients lists is people just don't like thinking about death. And I didn't before I was diagnosed and so they're not really listening. When you say things to them, they're inquiring and they're being polite, but they're not really taking it in. Um, so they're not going to get in a big profound conversation with you about your cancer. Yeah. They just go, that's breast cancer. That's curable. La, 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 <laughs> you know, They've stopped listening after when you say it's breast cancer. It's just like, oh, she's going to survive. That's grand. <laughs> you know, yeah. they just, if, you know, if I was like, if I was like, being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer most people would be like oh yeah you're yeah yeah you're you're a goner but when there's breast cancer you know people think it's curable and people don't realize that 25 percent of women who get it die from it yeah and you have to deal with that and it's just all the awareness stuff that has given people the wrong idea it's just and calling it chronic has given people the wrong idea because they people think chronic illnesses you live 30 years with them and it's yeah, the whole breast cancer awareness industry has a lot to um, answer for there, really, with people's conceptions yeah. of the illness. Yeah, the main thing is just people don't understand that treatment is never ending for me. Even my mother-in-law, over Christmas, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, you, you know, like, I'm still going to die from this. And she was like, I thought the treatment was working. And I was like, <laughs> this is my mother-in-law, and she can't even be bothered to work it out. Oh, my God. So I just realized that really showed me what I'm up against there when somebody who's that close to me and I get along really well with her. If yeah. she doesn't know, how, what chance is somebody you just meet on the street of getting it like? Has that done anything for your mindset about what happens when, when you pass for you? You know, are you a spiritual person or do you kind of just... Uh, I'm you... not. I don't believe in the afterlife. I kind of wish I did. I understand now why people do. Because it's very hard to think. I won't be here, but then I won't be here. So um, I won't be here to not realize, <laughs> you know, it's, it's very, I can see why people grapple with those kind of questions because it's mind bending, isn't it? Yeah. It's just, um, I don't believe in the afterlife, um, but I probably will have a Catholic uh, funeral just because it'll be easier for my parents. You know, they yeah. won't have to think about mm, a civil funeral. Like I don't want them to have to, I just want them to be able to fall back into regular patterns of things they've done before you know yeah um afterlife um 
Well, I don't believe in it, um, but it's very hard to imagine not being there, if that makes sense. I just can't get my head around that. Um, yeah, I, I can see how people believe in the afterlife. It must be very comforting, but I don't, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, for for the most part, aside from kind of the understanding that, that this will end, you don't necessarily feel day-to-day that you're dying, or or do you? Um, that depends on how I'm feeling. No, I mean, for the last two years, I felt pretty good, but but you can still tell there's limitations there when I do anything strenuous. Um, early on in my diagnosis, I did feel like I was dying because I could barely breathe and I was in a lot of pain and I don't think I was thought to have that long. But yeah, it's amazing once you start to feel better um, physically that you do feel um, you do feel better and like you're not dying anymore. So that, it, you know, it really kind of depends on how I'm feeling physically. Um, but then... Yeah, so it's very weird. I I am dying. And then in your everyday life, it's hard to deal with that when you have all these everyday things to do, like cooking dinner and like, oh, I'm cooking dinner and I'm dying. (laughs) It's weird. Um, That doesn't get any less weird, to be honest. Um, That's just very strange. (laughs) Yeah. So Um, uh, have you planned any kind of um, crazy holidays or do you give stuff? things for yourself to look forward to or, or you know a bucket list type stuff oh i don't do bucket lists um i do no i mean i've done lots of traveling since i was diagnosed but i don't like the idea of a bucket list because i think that sounds like adding pressure to my life and also like well first of all finding the money for it and just like i feel like i have to enjoy this moment what if i didn't enjoy something on my bucket list i don't know so my general philosophy has been no planned bucket list, but I will take more opportunities when they are presented to me. So where I might have said no in the past, I'll say yes now if I can. So more, it's more of an immediate bucket list just on the spot. If somebody says, do you want to do this? I'll go, yeah, where I might have said no. So I am definitely doing more traveling, doing more, uh, experiencing more. But I, I, don't, I don't like the idea of a formal bucket list because it'd just be kind of another... I suppose I feel like it was another burden in my life or something. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I know some people love them and they, they get a lot out of them. I guess it's a personal thing. I would just feel like, oh, it would be pressure. Like, okay, I have to save to go to America now or something, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, but I've done a lot of traveling. Um, but just more, we, I give myself things to look forward to, but um they're doable things and they're things that aren't that far into the future you know that kind of way um so i like i know if i wanted to do a bucket list i could probably set up a crowdfunding thing and i could probably raise money and i'm sure people would donate to it like i would to i've donated to those things before but it's just that makes it too public if it's crowdfunding you have to understandably you have to explain who you are and you know, you have to give people lots of information if they're giving you money. And I just don't want to do that. So, you know, um, people deserve that. If they're giving you, if they're donating money to you, they deserve to have, to know what they're giving money to. And I just, it's too, um, too public for me. And I wouldn't be able to do a bucket list by myself. So um, I'm happy enough. And, and also it's just life, traveling is great and all, but life is kind of in the everyday. I think I just kind of want to do normal things. Yeah. And I think I've heard other terminal cancer patients say the thing that they just want to live their normal life, you know. Have you got anything coming up that you're looking forward to now? Uh, yeah. Um, so I'm going to, I haven't been to London uh, since 2010. So I'm going there in a few weeks. Um, and then I'm going to Berlin in May. And nothing, now, then after that, I need to save a bit of money because I've done a lot of traveling. I went to Iceland last year. I went to Portugal um so i just berlin london and then i just need to save some money because i'm a bit broke so um, <laughs> um it's it's a lot of saving i have to scrimp in my everyday life a lot to do that so um i just need i just need a time period after that where i'm not watching my pennies all the time you know so yeah. and then we'll probably plan something for 
We might go back to Iceland because that was lovely. I was about um, to ask you what the verdict was in Iceland. It's yeah, it's great. Like it's we went in September, um, early September. We weren't planning on seeing Northern Lights or anything, but we did very faintly see them. But I was a bit I was a bit underwhelmed <laughs> because it wasn't the right time of year. But the scenery is just gorgeous, and it's very it feels very unspoiled. Um, even in the tourist areas, it's all very nicely done so that it doesn't feel the facilities that they've had to put in to make them yeah. kind of safe ruin the, the um, countryside. And it's just kind of a weird country in a good way. Like you can smell sulfur off the water and it's very, it's just everywhere you look is scenic, kind of, you know, yeah. even more so than Ireland. Um, so I would, if you haven't been, I would definitely recommend it. And I think there's, um, you know, I think it's just become more accessible to um, different parts of the world because you can fly there more cheaply now. So yeah, it was it was great. Go there. <laughs> uh, and we only had three days there, so we um, we want to go back and just see other parts of the country, yeah. maybe. But I won't do it if I'm not physically able because there's no point. Did you know that there is a McDonald's right beside the Egyptian pyramids? No. That I, f- <laughs> I swear to when when we get off this call, Google it. It's it's one of the most. Fr- and you talk about Iceland still kind of remaining pure. Um, there's pictures of people eating Happy Meals, and you can take a picture through the window and see the pyramids behind you. And I think that just for me ruins <laughs> it. Like that's that's tourism gone wrong, isn't it? Where Let's yeah. go see these ancient, ancient ruins, but I can't do it without a Big Mac. You know what I mean? It's just, it, it boggles my mind that, that that's what it's come to, the commercialism. You know what I mean? So I'm kind of with, with well, you and I'd rather go see ruins that no one really gets to see or, or kind of like, you know, not well-known areas and kind of go and everything's just yeah. well laid out, well facilitated. It takes away from the purity of it almost. Yeah. Now, having said that, where I went in Iceland were the most popular areas and it is quite busy. But I think if you get um, away from those areas, I think it's a lot quieter because I think they said something like 90 percent of people who go to Iceland only stay around the Reykjavik area. Right. So that's a whole big island. So um, if you go there and you don't want there to be lots of people, I there's a ring road around the country. It's Route 1, it's called. And I think it takes about two weeks to drive around. But I think it's very unspoiled in a lot of parts of it because most people don't venture that far yeah so that would be my tip to you if you don't want lots of people um that's mad oh yeah i am going to google that now (laughs) it's yeah it's fascinating or it reminds me when i was in prague and i saw an advertisement for the museum of communism and its um address was above mcdonald's on some certain street i was like (laughs) the communism museum above a symbol for capital that's hilarious. <laughs> um, so yes, it, um, to sum up, it is good to have things to look forward to. But I don't like a I don't like a planned bucket list. Just as things come, I'll, I'll plan them. Sorry. Yeah, I think it makes <laughs> sense. You kind of you don't want to give yourself the pressure of having to check stuff off, and then yeah, you don't know when's going to happen. You're like, shit, I've, I've got five things left to do, and just, yeah. it's just another thing you got to deal with. Yeah, although and and, I, and I'm not knocking them for other people. I I know why they because for other people I'm sure their motivation. It's just an individual thing. I I just I'm glad I don't have that. It'd be like a millstone around my neck, you know. Just, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I've done lots of traveling, but I have no money now, so I need to stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think about or or how? would you like your your family to remember you given that you've you've got time to prepare and you've kind of you went through that really rough period of three months where you're you know just angry at everyone um how do you want them to remember you um i don't remind i don't mind them remembering the bad stuff weirdly um because nobody is perfect but they probably won't you know when somebody dies you you just think about the good stuff um how do I want them to remember me? I, I don't know. I mean, I hope, I hope they're fond memories. I hope that all the stresses of the last few years aren't remembered. Um, that's something I worry about because you know, with cancer patients, like uh, the decline isn't pretty, and I just, I do kind of worry about, um, you know, will they remember me just being ill? I hope not. I hope they just remember me before that 
I don't know though. I've never had somebody, anyone, you know, who's died on me and my family has been older and it's been more natural. So this is all, I don't even know how I would react if it was a sibling. It's very weird. That was very weird that I even have to think about this, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. It's just a weird position to be. Is there is there any, um, so if I was in your position, when I was 11, I drank the milk out of the carton and I blamed it on my little brother and he got <laughs> grounded and no one has ever known that. So I would definitely write a letter to both my parents and my little brother saying that. Do you have oh. anything similar where you're like, hey, that was me? Um, yes, I am going to write letters. Yes. Um, that is definitely a plan. And yes, it will be. I will be sort of acknowledging stuff that I did in my past. Yes, I have thought about that. Um, and just, you know, there's sometimes you don't show your gratitude for your family and sometimes it's hard to say it to them. So I will be putting stuff like that in letters and acknowledging things and also some of my friends as well my husband obviously yeah there's just certain things i want to say that's just very hard to say to their face because we're just i don't know i'm not like a really soppy person so i just want them <laughs> i i'm just like you know yeah um, you're so, irish <laughs> yes um so yes i am going to write letters and Oh, I like to be honest, I should probably start doing it because you don't know when you'll deteriorate. And I say there's a lot of people who've planned to do that and then never got the chance. So yeah. I think that will have to start happening soon. It's awful to think about though, but um it's very hard to do, but I have to do it. Yeah. Um so yes, letters will be written. I don't know how they'll remember me though. Um. Hopefully good. I don't know. So let's uh, let's finish on on a bit of a positive note because you you've talked a lot about reading blogs and the Twitter community and uh, kind of watching from the outside. It seems like there's just a phenomenal support group there. Um, mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about how that how that has helped you and what it's what it's been able for you to kind of tap into that community. Well, oh, it's I don't know what people did before the internet when they had a diagnosis like mine because you know. For the first few weeks, all I could find was stuff about early stage breast cancer patients. And I was just like, ah, this is so hard. Um, But then, you know, I first found this group on Facebook that was for women with secondary breast cancer. That was amazing. And then when I started my blog, you know, you link it to Twitter. And I didn't really think much about Twitter, but it's been amazing. I've met so many people on it. And it's so important because you feel so isolated because when you're early 30s or in your 40s or whatever, you're most people don't have terminal illnesses by a great percentage. You And in a country like Ireland, where it's a low population anyway, it's really hard to meet people who are in your position and you feel so isolated. Not only do you have this awful diagnosis, but you just like you need somebody else to talk to because unless you're terminal, you don't know what it's like. So the online community is just great for, has anyone ever experienced this? And then somebody usually will be like, yes, I have. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm not going crazy. There's somebody else there. It's brilliant. It's just like, it's just, it's just a great support. Just the only people who understand what you're going through are people who are also terminal. Somebody with early stage cancer, like it's great that they have early stage cancer and they will hopefully survive. But they don't, they have a different mindset and they can't relate because they're thinking of survival and you already know that's not going to happen. So the online community is so supportive. It's just somebody out there who has gone through something you have. Maybe not every, we're, you know, we're not all the same. It's a Venn diagram. There's overlapping areas. So you will find somebody in the overlapping area with you who has done that thing or can just say, yes, I've had that. That sucks. And you go, yes, that even that's uplifting, <laughs> just, you know. Um, but yes, although I have to say I'm very wary to lump us all in together. I try not to say we when I'm talking about people with terminal illness because we, I just said we. <laughs> <laughs> because the experience is different for everyone, you know. But it's just you'll find, you should find somebody who's been through something you're experiencing. It's not that you expect every single terminally ill person to have experienced all the things you have. It's just 
you should be able to find somebody who has and that's really supportive it's just good to connect with people that way and then hopefully you can support them too so that's nice it's not all one way you i want to support people too so it's i don't know what people did before the internet it must be so lonely <laughs> yeah. it must have been so lonely mustn't it yeah. like uh, so it's great um uh god bless blogs and the internet they just have helped me a lot i don't know what i've done would have done a lot of people are taking a lot from your blog too and your activity on twitter so i'm sure they're going to appreciate your story i mean i don't know if there's if there's anyone have has given an interview with with as much candor as you have today um you know you may know better well, than me but I, I i see a lot of blogs but the ability for you to to talk through these things um i'm sure will bring a lot of people um comfort in in knowing that they're not the only one who kind of deals with it's it's just daily struggle almost yeah um and it's actually it's easier to talk about it than write about it so you know maybe maybe you should talk to other bloggers as well because this has been it's been easier to talk about than i thought and you know you might get different perspectives as well you know and um, sometimes talking you can kind of say more than with writing in a way sort of yeah you don't second guess yourself as you're editing what you're writing and things like that yeah yeah um but yeah listen I, I do your your honesty has been refreshing and it's been um such a good chat for me and the fact that you know despite your blogs being kind of downbeat and we talked about maybe you need them to be therapeutic the fact that you can still you have a sense of humor about this and you're you seem to be carrying yourself with a lot of grace and and i i'm sure people appreciate that um so i appreciate it i, I i've loved talking to you and um you know you have some serious strength to be going through what you're going through yeah thank you <laughs> <laughs> uh, i don't know i mean i just kind of have to <laughs> so should we just do our typical irish goodbye i mean if we were in the same room i would probably leave without talking to you and just text yeah. you later and say all the best <laughs> yeah See uh, yeah yeah, the, the the ten years in the states, they had no idea. Like they, I just just get used to me not being there at the end of the night and getting a text a couple of days later. Yeah. And there's no hint of any American accent either. I've worked very hard at that because I'd go home every so often and, and people would, you know, I'd say stuff like trash and and all that stuff, and um, it's not worth the the grief you get back home. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah i think if i lived um in america i'd probably try and talk to irish people as much as i could just to keep the accent you know yeah watch anyway. love hate on repeat like just <laughs> making sure to stay the point <laughs> yeah um so listen this was brilliant i can't thank you enough and um we'll stay in touch anyway and and i really appreciate you sharing your story today you're welcome <laughs>